I want to take just a moment to explain uh, this morning's uh, order of worship. We have in the last number of weeks been uh, considering Psalm 119. This will be the last week. Thus, I want this week to pull that together, to summarize that, and to walk us through it in a worship context. So we've divided the service in various sections. You can see them by the headings as we, as we always divide the service. We want to begin with uh, a discussion and a consideration of the blessing that comes from, from God's word. Then to move to prayers concerning the word of God as the psalmist has led us. And we'll think through our reluctance to listen and a time of confession and how it is that we pray that God would bring light to his scripture, that we might understand it, and then our commitment to meditate and to obey. In the midst of all of that, there'll be opportunities for us to respond in various ways, by praying, by singing praise, by affirming faith. So that is our plan as we begin this morning. Um, Let me begin with this word from God, from various passages you can see from Psalm 119, please uh, hear the word of God as I read these, listen, if you will, for the blessing that comes to us from God's word, hear the word of God, verses 1 and 2, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole hearts, verses 5 and 6, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Verse 65, you've dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Verses 98 through 100, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age for I keep your precepts. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This psalm is a so we've said is a very carefully crafted one. As we look through it, it has 22 stanzas. Each stanza has, has sort of its um, focal point, uh, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse begins with a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet in succession from the first to the last, carefully crafted. It's, crafted. it's, a, it's, a, it's a psalm that delights in the word of God. It's a praise to the word of God because the psalmist knows its great value. The psalmist uses various synonyms for the word of God. In fact, every verse save one or two, maybe three at the most, uh, has a direct allusion to the word of God, a word that's in that verse 
that speaks to the word of God. He uses the word law, which speaks of this, this whole corpus, all that, that he has before him, all that God has given by this time in the psalmist's life, that is the very word of God. Uh, he uses the word testimonies, which is a, a witness, as a testimony would be, a witness to the truth that God provides through this word, a witness that speaks truthfully, rightly about God and about us and about how life is to be lived. He, he uses he used the word precepts, which means that even in all the details of this law is truth. He uses the word statutes or decrees, as it's been in some, which says that God has the authority uh, to, to make this law binding upon us. He uses the word command, which gives the authority that, that God has to, to rule. He uses the expression righteous rules or judgments. It says this is the standard by which all evaluation is made, all judgments are made. He uses the word ways, which says this is to be the life that we're to live. So this whole psalm is an allusion uh, to um, the very word of God, and it brings blessing, as we've seen from these opening verses. No, no, really, as, as we've said all along, this word blessing means happiness. For you and for me, that's a rather shallow kind of a word. It, it, it's circumstantial, hap, as in happening or happenstance, something that just sort of happens. And we suspect that when that happening is gone, then we'll no longer be happy. So there are sad happenings and happy happenings and all of that. But for the psalmist, this is an enduring happiness. For him to be blessed means to know the blessed life means that we're going to live life that's really worth living, where there's deep satisfaction and ultimately no regret that this life is the life that is from God. It is indeed the life worth living. It's declared upon the covenant people of God. Remember the great blessing that Aaron and his sons, who were priests, were to speak to the people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he, he lift up his countenance upon you means his very presence is with you. And thus, if God is with you, who can be against you? So there were to be a blessed people, knowing that always that they belong to God. There were to be a people to say that we live in God. So who can be against us? But then the psalmist says, but we have this law of God, the very wisdom of God, the very word of God, if we live by it, we'll not only have that blessing declared upon us so that we can live in this sense of peace and security and all of that, but as we live out this law, we'll experience in our very lives, regardless of circumstance, the, the great blessing, the happiness that comes from following following after God. Look at the blessings in, in just the passages that we've read. For instance, in, in, in verse 5, or verse 6, he says, then I shall not be put to shame. Meaning, if I follow this wisdom of God, if I follow that which God has revealed to us as his desire, as his pleasure, as what he desires for our lives, I'll never be put to shame. Meaning, I'll never be put, I'll never be disappointed. I'll never be dis- All of his promises will be fulfilled. If I follow anything else, Disappointment will follow. If I follow this word, I'll never be disappointed. I'll never be put to shame. Notice verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? There's purity, purity of life, moral purity that comes from this. Uh, will not wander from his commandments, not sin against him. What great blessing. Verse 25, he says, my soul clings to the dust even when I'm in 
the most difficult time of life. He says, give me life or revive me according to your word. This word comes, it revives our souls. My soul melts away for sorrow. He says in verse 28, strengthen me according to your word. When this word comes, it brings with it strength. In verse 32, this word comes, it enlarges our heart. It increases our capacity, if you will, our ability to handle all of life. Verse 50, it says, this is my comfort in my affliction when I hear this word when this word comes to me, when it fills my life, I have comfort. Verse 65, good comes according to this word. You have dealt well with your servant according to your word. It brings wisdom, wiser than my enemy enemies, more understanding than all my teachers, more understanding than even those who are elders. It's a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You see, this is consistent with the whole of Scripture. God gave his word to Adam and Eve in the garden from obedience was to come blessing. When they disregarded his word, curse, misery came. But God continued to speak. He continued to speak to those with whom he gathered around himself as his covenant people. And he told them that they should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his mouth. He says, as I speak and you hear and follow, that's real Life to you. He said, these are not idle words. These words are your life to Joshua. He says, if you wish to have success, that is wisdom to know exactly what to do. If you you want to have success, then meditate on my word day and night. May it inform everything. All of your thoughts, all of your affections, that is what you value and what you don't, what you love and what you hate, what you approve, what you disapprove. May it inform all of that. May it inform your thoughts, your affections, your emotions, your decisions, your actions, everything. Then you'll have success, meaning you'll please me, God says, and you'll have all that I've promised. Yes, this very word of God. Indeed, as we realize in the scripture as, as the apostle writes concerning this word of God. Notice how he puts it in Second Timothy in chapter 3. says all of this scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The author of Hebrews speaks of this word in chapter 4 like this. He says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He says, this word comes and reveals all to us about God, about ourselves. And thus, knowing all of that, there is great blessing. No wonder this psalmist would say of this word in verse 14 of Psalm 119, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Hmm. Let me ask you please to stand to sing of this great word of God, of its great wonders, because you see, This, as we see here, verse 2, the glory or creation shines, but in thy sacred word I read in fair, brighter lines, my bleeding, dying Lord, my bleeding, dying Lord, because we realize that he is the one, this Jesus, 
who brings all blessings. Let us together sing. This passage of scripture which is the last stanza of this psalm beginning with verse 169. Hear the word of God. Psalmist says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise for you. Teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commands. This last stanza, it's helpful for me to see this last one in light of the first stanza. Uh, There he begins speaking of the blessedness. Notice verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their their whole heart and do no wrong, but, but walk in his Ways I read that and I wonder, who can that be? Who can ever be blessed? He speaks of God's standards, verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. You read that and say, well, who can know this blessed life? But then we see his humility in verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Verse 8. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. In other words, you realize that he has this great resolve to keep the word of God. He, he knows it's the way of blessing, but he also knows his own heart. And so he, so he cries out to God, God, please help me in this. God, don't, for, don't forsake me. So we realize with the psalmist that this life before God is this life that's lived in knowing the very standards of God and a life of repentance, then a life of restoration through forgiveness, and a life of real resolve to follow after God. That, that, that process, repentance, restoration through forgiveness, sense of reconciliation even, restoration, and, and then this sense of resolve. Yes, I'm going to follow after God. And then we know what happens as we make that resolve, then, then we fail, we repent. And again, we receive reconciliation by way of forgiveness, and we then make that resolve again to go. And that seems to be what is flowing through in the life of this psalmist. In this last stanza, we see a recognition by this psalmist of his, of his own weakness. He, he comes to cry before God, and he needs understanding, he needs deliverance. He needs help. He needs the very salvation of God. And this because, as he reveals in verse 176, this which we know of ourselves, he knew of himself. He says, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I don't forget your commandments. He says, here's the very nature of my life. I'm like a sheep that finds myself straying, inclined inclined to move away from this law. I'm like a sheep. I know I need a shepherd. I'm like a sheep. I know one who, I'm, I'm like one who needs to be led needs to be fed, who needs to be protected by one who is my shepherd, one who is my king. 
So I know that about myself. So what I need, God, really, is for you to seek me. I don't forget your commandments. I know they're there. I've resolved to follow after them, but what I find myself is this one who is like a sheep. The prophet Isaiah spoke to us of this very condition of our hearts in Isaiah in chapter 53 and verse 6. All we like sheep, he said, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. So what do we do? Well, the prophet solves that dilemma for us when he says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The him there is this one who is the servant of the Lord, this one who has come to bear our iniquity that we might be forgiven. We know this process of repentance and reconciliation and restoration and resolve. But we also know as we come before God on this morning that we are like the psalmist, like a sheep inclined to wander. This response is a prayer of confession. Notice in your bulletins, let us pray it together responsively. Our Father in heaven, you've commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Deal bountifully with your servants that I may live and keep your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me understanding. Amen. Let me ask you please to stand that we might together sing of this mercy of God that each of us needs. The psalmist knows the great value of the law of God and that it's life to him. He desires greatly to, to know it, to understand it. Of course he would since it's of great value, since it brings blessing. But he knows his own heart so he confesses in the midst of this psalm his need for God to be at work. And then he prays that God would open his eyes and enable him to see. We know this prayer is a prayer of illumination. This prayer that we pray that enables us, that asks God to enable us to see it, to understand his scripture. That we would not be resistant to it, not not be inclined against it, but to, to embrace it. Let me ask you please just to bow. And let me pray such a prayer of illumination as we find from this psalmist in Psalm 119. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Open my eyes 
that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. When I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I'll meditate on your wondrous works. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Your testimonies are right are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. God, let my cry come before you. Give me understanding according to your word. Amen. I've titled this particular section as we work through this. Uh, the Word and the Spirit, the Spirit and the Word. It's really too broad a title. I should have been content with just this idea of the prayer of illumination. The reason it's too broad is because everything that we are and all that is is a result of God's Word and Spirit, not just this particular prayer. Um, all of life and ministry is a result of God working by his word and spirit. Those of you who know me know that I think about life and ministry this way, that my life, our ministry, rises and falls in the power of God's word working by his spirit to bring his kingdom, to transform our lives. And if that isn't true, then we're sunk. We have no plan B. That's it, all of it together. God at work through Christ, by his word and his spirit, by his word, his living word, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's creator of all that is. He's king. He has come and lived as us for us. He has come and died as us for us. He has risen us, us in him so that we may have life eternal, the very written word, of, the very living word of God. And yet all of this, by God's wonderful grace, is written for us. In the scripture, thus the psalmist would speak of this word written as that which is to him, uh, to him life. For it reveals all that we need to know. It reveals all that we need for life and godliness. It reveals all that there is to know about God and to us for our lives. And this, of course, by the work of God's spirit working through people. The scripture refers to itself as being God-breathed. That comes out from God. When people speak to us about, oh, the Bible's been written by human beings, we say yes and no. Yes and no. For these human beings were worked into by the spirit of God. Peter writes this, the apostle, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along moved along by the Holy Spirit that little image of being moved along is like a boat being moved along by the wind that comes and hits its sails that that kind of moving along the Holy Spirit moving in each of these authors lives so that uh, they would write precisely that which is to be in fact written this comes by way of the Holy Spirit. Now we know as we've just seen 
that we're like sheep who go astray. We need to confess our sins as we come into the presence of God and we need to ask him to help us because we know that our hearts are naturally disinclined from him. And so as we come and we ask God to teach us, we come to ask God to help us, then we're asking him to incline our hearts towards him. Notice how this uh, psalmist uh, puts it in, in all of these, this, this prayer that, that, uh, that we considered. That in fact uh, we are to, uh, he says, to incline our hearts towards him, to, to teach us his statutes, to teach us his ways. So that's what we pray. Why do we pray that? Because we need a work. And who does that work? The very Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he was speaking about about our hearts and this need for spiritual rebirth. He says you can't see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again, born from the Spirit. That's a work, Jesus said, of the Holy Spirit. Now Nicodemus didn't quite get him, but we now do. We understand what Jesus was speaking about. He was speaking about this very work of the Spirit that comes and inclines our hearts and changes our hearts, that gives us new life so that, rather than being inclined against him and against his word, that we would be towards it, that we would be drawn to him. That is this new birth. And it precedes, you see, the faith that we have because it changes our hearts that we would listen to really hear and understand and see from God. And so the psalmist is praying that very thing. Teach me, he says. Come to me. Teach me that I may know. The apostle uh, Paul speaks to us about this natural disinclination and this work of the Spirit as well. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in, in chapter 1, he, he writes like this, verse, um, or chapter 2, verse 6. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by him. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. All these words spiritual referring to the Holy Spirit. These are spiritual words, not that they're funny or weird or mystical or any of that. They're real words, but they're words that come from the Spirit. And they're words that can be only understood by those in whom the Spirit has worked so that he's inclined our minds, our hearts to these very things. Thus, the apostle would pray for the people in Ephesus and really for all of the church He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in your knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, 
but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, what is it that the apostle was praying here? He was praying that the church gets it. He was praying that the church sees it. He was praying that the church understands it. And what is it that he was praying that the church would get and to to see and understand? The very work of Christ. And what was he praying for? He was praying that the Holy Spirit would come and reveal this in a way that we would understand it. And it isn't simply an intellectual thing, you see. It's a moral thing. That is to say, that we're inclined against this truth. We'd rather live our own way as a sheep would rather go its own way. And so you see the apostles praying the Holy Spirit would overcome all of that in them so that they would know the hope of Christ. And that, you see, is the very work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Spirit would come and he would take that which is mine and give it to you. He would reveal all these things and he would convict the world of sin and he would convict the world of righteousness and he would convict the world of judgment, meaning that he would show us our sin that we would know that we've fallen away from God. And he would convict us of righteousness. That is the very righteousness of Christ. That we need to be righteous and that righteousness comes in and through Christ only. And the world of judgment to know that in the work of Christ that Satan was judged, that evil was judged. And so by faith in Jesus then we can be reconciled to God. That's our hope. And that's our inheritance to know that Christ rules and reigns. And so he prays. And we pray this too. We pray that we would know this truth, that God would reveal to us by his spirit his very word. Thus the psalmist prays, open my eyes that I might see the wondrous works, your wondrous works in your law this great prayer that we might know our great God let me ask you to stand and sing together of this great God and his work in us by his spirit So the question is, has the Holy Spirit worked in you that you would understand these things and believe them? Recently there have been, by recently I mean in the last generation, a couple of questions that uh, Christians have asked others to see if the Holy Spirit has indeed worked. They're called diagnostic questions. There are two. It goes like this. The first, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die today you would go to heaven? Or is that something you would say you're still working on? The second question is this. Suppose that you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, these questions rightly responded to uh, reveal a manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit in us to enable us to understand. Our Dutch brethren, being more economical than Americans, boiled it down to one question. The one answer centuries ago and put it to us and what we have is the first question an answer of the Heidelberg Catechism that is our profession of faith if you believe this 
sign that the Holy Spirit has worked in you. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, wherefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. You may be seated. Let me read these verses from Psalm 119, verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways, verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word, verse 23. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes, verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works, verse 48. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love and will meditate on your statutes, verse 78. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. But as for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 99. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. Verse 148. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise we need to know that this understanding doesn't come in a vacuum yes we pray that God would enable us to see it but that prayer brings with us this attachment that that if God you will open my eyes to see then I will look God if you'll open my eyes to see then I'll consider I'll, I'll meditate upon your ways we've considered praying that God would open our eyes and now we come to this point of Meditation. Martin Luther, uh, in his preface to his German, to the German edition of his writings, speaks of Christians as theologians. Now he doesn't use that word in a, in a technical way as, as we've been uh, sort of wont to do. We think of a theologian as someone who's in the, as a clergy person. We think of a theologian as somebody who is one who has that profession of being professor of theology. But when Luther used the term theologian, he was speaking of all people, really, but most especially all Christians. In fact, he pinpointed and he said a theologian is one who listens to God, listens to God speak. And so he says, if we're all going to be theologians, then, then we need to pray and we need to meditate and we need, through the experience of trial, to obey him. Let me read how he puts it. He says, Moreover, I want to point out to you a correct way of studying theology, for I've had practice in that. And again, he's not referring to himself as a professor. He's referring to himself as a Christian, one who has been studying theology. If you keep to it, he says, this method, You will become so learned that you yourself could, if it were necessary, write books 
just as good as those of the fathers and councils, even as I dare to presume and boast without arrogance and lying that in the matter of writing books I do not stand much behind some of the fathers. Of my life I can by no means make the same boast. This is the way taught by holy King David and doubtlessly used also by all the patriarchs and prophets in the 119th Psalm. There are There you will find three rules amply presented throughout the whole psalm. They are oratio, meditatio, uh, tentatio, prayer, meditation, and trial. Now, we've considered this part of this method of praying. Luther goes on in meditation. He says, secondly, you should meditate, that is, not only in your heart, but also externally by actually repeating and comparing oral speech and literal words of the book, reading and rereading them with diligent attention and reflection so that you may see what the Holy Spirit means by them. Take care that you do not grow weary or think that you've done enough when you've read, heard, or, and spoken them once or twice and that you have then complete understanding. You'll never be a particularly good theologian. And I would add, he would simply mean a good follower of Christ. If you do that, that has become weary, for you will be like untimely fruit which falls to the ground before it is half ripe. He says, you've got to keep after this. If not, you'll be like a fruit that you pick up off the ground that isn't really ripe. That will be your life. Thus, he says, you see in this same psalm how David constantly boasts that he will talk, meditate, sing, speak, hear, read by day and night always about nothing except God's word and commandments. For God will not give you his spirit without the external word. So take your cue from that His command to write, preach, read, hear, sing, speak, and so forth was not given in vain. So Luther and this psalmist, shall we say Luther from this psalmist, says that we need to meditate on the word of God. Now, meditation, as we think of it biblically, isn't at all like uh, meditation as is often taught In other religions and even throughout our culture, this emptying one's mind, this being passive, it isn't anything like that at all. In fact, Donald Whitney in a a book um, entitled Spiritual Discipline speaks like this. He says, the kind of meditation encouraged in the Bible differs from other kinds of meditations in several ways. While some advocates, I'm sorry, while some advocate a kind of meditation which, in which you do your best to empty your mind. Christian meditation involves filling your mind with God and truth. For some, meditation is an attempt to achieve complete mental passivity, but, but biblical meditation requires constructive mental activity. Worldly meditation employs visualization techniques intended to create your own reality. And while Christian history has always had a place for the sanctified use of our God-given imagination, Imagination is our servant to help us meditate on things that are true, not that we create. Furthermore, instead of creating our own reality through visualization, we like meditation with, like in meditation with prayer to God and responsible spirit-filled human action to affect change. Thus, Whitney defines meditation like this. He says, as deep thinking on truths and spiritual realities revealed in scripture for the purpose of understanding of application in prayer. Meditation is a deep thinking on truths and spiritual realities. And those deep spiritual truths and realities as revealed in the scripture 
and this for the purpose of understanding, application, and prayer. So again, as I mentioned earlier, as God speaks to Joshua, as Joshua comes into um, a place of leadership, God speaks to him and he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. That little expression, that it shouldn't depart from your mouth, this law. That doesn't mean that he shouldn't speak in it. In fact, it means he should, because it means that everything that you say, Joshua, should be informed by this word. That that as you speak, you shouldn't speak something different than this word, but you should speak that which is informed by it. It doesn't mean, uh, Joshua, that you need to all the time speak chapter and verse. Chapter and verse uh, didn't exist then. The word of God existed in the books of Moses then, but it wasn't divided in chapter and verse until about the 10th century AD. So it wasn't even chapter and verse. He didn't speak that necessarily. But everything he did speak was informed by it. Meaning that... If everything that you speak is informed by this word, then it must mean your thoughts are informed by this word. And if your thoughts are informed by this word, and what you speak is informed by this word, uh, then it must mean that your, infection, your, your affections are informed by this word. And when I say affections, I, I use it in an, in an old sense, not in a new sense, not emotions per se, although they should be informed by this word as well. But when we speak of affections, we're speaking of that which you approve of and that which you disapprove of, that which you love and that which you hate, that which you value and that which you don't. He says, everything then about what you're thinking and about what you believe about what is right and wrong, what is good and bad, what is valuable, what isn't, should be informed by this word so that everything that you say is informed by this word so that... Everything that you do is informed by this word. So Joshua, he's saying, if you meditate on this word, if you soak yourself in it to such a degree, then it becomes who you are. And so you find yourself speaking it. You find yourself speaking it because you're thinking it. And you're thinking it because you've meditated on it. And you're thinking it and speaking it because it's your very life. And so it's to be that for us, that we're to so enmesh ourself there. Now, it isn't an easy thing. And it isn't a quick thing, this meditation, consideration of the Word of God. It is deep thinking. And it's taking all of these passages of Scripture which we think about, and it's running them through life. What does this say to me? about who God is? What does this say to me about who am I am? What does this say to me about the circumstances of life? What does this say to me about how I'm to understand the circumstances of life? What does this say to me about how I'm to respond to the circumstances of life? What does this say to me about how I'm to live this out in relationship very often with you and with others as well? Not easy. Thomas, uh, Jeff Thomas, a Britisher, puts it like this. He says, don't expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. It's not all equally clear. Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word. I know many of you don't believe that. You believe that you're the only one who reads a passage of scripture and says, wow, 
What does that mean? Do you understand, and I only use myself as an example because I'm the only example I can use without getting into trouble. Um, if you said to me, Bill, tonight, well, you wouldn't say anything. Bill, preach on John 3.16. Most of you would expect that I would just open my Bible and have at it. But I can assure you that I would read it and I would say, whoa, what does this mean? And I can assure you, not only because I'm a little compulsive, but also because I read it and I tremble, I would probably spend 20 hours studying and reading and writing on John 3.16. And you might say, surely he should know what all that is. And I would say, oh, I know I should. <laughs> but when I read it and ponder it, it takes me places that I have to think about again and again and again. So when this guy says, Jeff Thomas, who's a fine man, when he says the great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word, I'm way less than great as are you most likely, but still don't. Be surprised when some of the most common passages take you back. The Apostle Peter says that there were some things hard to understand in the epistles of Paul. I'm glad he wrote those words because I've felt that often. So don't expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you'll get no emotional response at all. Let the word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by. That's the crucial point as the years go by. 30 years ago, I wouldn't have understood that at all. But as you can tell, the years have gone by. I know what that means. Let the word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by and imperceptibly there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read no longer and then you will not need the Bible anymore because when you close when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the word of God in scripture, you will open your eyes to the word of God in the flesh, that same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. I trust you realize that every Sunday, that's exactly what we do, in other words, we meditate upon the Word of God. This is the model for our lives, this time of coming together, this weekly time of coming together. It sets the tone and it, it sets the pattern of our lives. We gather around the Scripture. We come, we hear God call. We confess our sin to Him that we've sinned against Him and, and we need Him to restore us to fellowship with Him that we might resolve to follow after Him. And then... We take up this meditation upon the scripture and week after week, year after year, together as a company of his people, we think about it. And you know, any one week you may just leave going, there you go. Maybe every once in a while you say, yes, that plants me. 
But I'll tell you this, that over the years, we're maturing. Over the years, we're growing up. Over the years, our affections are more like God's. What we value is more like what he values. What, what we love is more what he loves. What we hate is more what he hates. Well, well, how, how, how we live, how we speak, how we relate to one another grows. We, we see it. Uh, that's the reason we have to make sure that we help the young ones stay with us. Because they need to. Not because it's us. But it's because it's a community where the word of God is. And they may go, what's all that about? Say, Hang on. Hang on. Trust. As of the psalmist, he says, I delight in your word. And that didn't mean that every time he picks it up, he's just smiling and laughing. It means I know that I should. I know that this is your word. And I'm going I'm to persevere in this, even in the midst of, of, of difficulties, you see. But I'm going to meditate upon your word because I know that in the meditation of it, by the work of your spirit brings understanding. Let me ask you to please to stand to sing. And this is really a, a prayer as well. It's a prayer that God would, would incline us to his word, that we would understand it, that he would give us this one holy passion. Hear the word of God. Psalm 119 verse... 30. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I'll run the way of your commandments when you enlarge my hearts. Teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Verse 44. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Verse 57. The Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. Verse 60. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Verse 101. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Verse 106. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. Verse 112, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I will keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. This, this last consideration is joyful obedience. It's a logical necessity. It couldn't end before now. We have to pick this up because, you see, if in fact the word of God is of great value, brings blessing, brings life. If in fact I realize my own sinfulness and thus I can't follow that word, though, so I come and ask God to forgive me, to restore me. And then I resolve in him to follow after him. But I know in order to follow after him, I must know this word that brings blessing. So I pray. He would open my eyes that I would see it. And in, op- in praying that he would open my eyes that I would see it, then, then I'm committing to meditate on this word that I might learn it. So I say, since this word of God brings blessing, and God, I'm trusting you to open my eyes that I would see it, then I'll attend to it so it will inform my life and not depart, if you will, from my mouth. But having 
thought and said and prayed all of that, then it comes to this. I must resolve to obey it. I, I need to do it. If it really does bring blessing and the blessing comes from the doing of it, then I really must do it. And we go from point A to point Z in all of that. It needs all of this. Thus, the psalmist comes. And if we go back to Luther and think of a theologian as one who listens, then one who listens must also obey. When I was a kid, I would hear from my parents more often than I wanted to, more often than they wanted to say it. They would say something like this, you didn't listen. Now, I know what they meant by that. They didn't mean you didn't hear me. They didn't mean you didn't understand what we said. They meant you didn't do it. See, for my parents, listening and obedience sort of went together. To listen was to obey. So if you didn't obey, you didn't listen. That's what they said. Now, whether they knew this or not, my parents were being very biblical. Because in both Hebrew and Greek, both languages, and in English too, the word for obey is a derivative of the word to hear. So always in scripture, when we hear the word hear, or hear the word listen, it means also to obey. In the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology, uh, J.I. Packer defines obedience like this. He says, the idea of obedience, which this vocabulary suggests, is of a hearing that takes place under the authority or influence of the speaker. And that leads into compliance with his requests or orders. For obedience to be due a person, he must A have a right to command, and B, be able to make known his requirements. Man's duty to obey his maker thus presupposes A, God's lordship, and B, his revelation. The Old Testament habitually describes obedience to God as obeying, hearing, either his voice or his commandments. Disobedience, it describes as not hearing God's voice when he speaks. The end of meditation, the end of listening is obedience. And it's to be joyful. Uh, In fact, if it isn't joyful, then it betrays this whole thing. Because if one believes the blessing comes from the word of God, and if one is sorry that one hasn't obeyed, and if one desires understanding to know this word so that one can obey and be blessed by God, if one believes all of that, And one's obedience is always joyful for it's in anticipation of life. It's in anticipation of this blessing. It's in anticipation, this obedience of happiness. So it's no surprise when we even hear from the lips of Jesus that blessing comes in the midst of and from the doing. You might remember as Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount... He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's the sense of hearing them and doing them. To listen and not obey, in a sense, is not to listen. Right? Jesus, on, his, uh, on the night before he was betrayed, in his washing of his disciples' feet, speaks to them. And he says, um, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so you see, it comes round, it comes complete to knowing the value of the word of God and then, of course, to the doing of the word of God. This is the very intent, you see, of God giving to us the scripture that we would do it. All scripture, Paul writes to Timothy, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That a man of God may be equipped, competent, it may be competent, equipped for every good work. In fact, James speaks quite forthrightly when he says this. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's seen. And you say, that's silly. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We need to be doers, not hearers only. Now, of course, this doing isn't simply all that's necessary. It's a doing for the right reasons. It's, it's, it's a doing because the why of it is true as well. The psalmist isn't doing all of this for his own glory. You can tell that he isn't because he's utterly dependent upon God to enable him to do. So he, he prays and he seeks the very word of God, that which he is to do. And, and, and he seeks that God would incline his heart and his mind to it and, and even his life so that he would be enabled to do all of this. He knows that in the midst of this doing that God will enlarge his heart and increase his capacity and all of that. So it isn't for his own glory. He's depending upon God. God's the one who's going to be glorified by the life of the psalmist. But he knows in the midst of this as he lives to glorify God because of the goodness of God that he indeed will be is blessed. I've spoken of Martin Luther's uh, threefold method of being this theologian, this Christian. And he has a twist on this final one of obedience because he sets a context for obedience. Let me read. He says, Luther does, Thirdly, there is tentatio, that is, trial. He says, this is the touchstone which teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. Wisdom beyond all wisdom. Thus you see how David in the psalm mentioned so often about all kinds of enemies, arrogant princes or tyrants, false spirits and factions whom he must tolerate because he meditates, that is, because he's occupied with God's word in all manners of ways. For as soon as God's word takes root and grows in you, the devil will harry you and will make a real doctor of you, meaning a doctor of theology, by his assaults will teach you to see and to love God's word. I myself, he says, if you'll permit me mere mouse dirt, is how he refers to himself, 
to be mingled with pepper. I'm deeply indebted to my papists, that is, those popes that persecuted him, that through the devil's raging, they have beaten, oppressed, and distressed me so much. That is to say, they've made me a fairly good theologian, of which I would not have become otherwise. And I hardly grant them what they have won in return for this making of me honor, victory, and triumph, for that's the way they wanted it. Luther said, listen, it's through suffering, through these trials, that I've learned obedience. He knew Jesus. Scripture says of Jesus that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. They say, does it have to come that way? Only, of course not. There's all kinds of ways in which situations in which we learn obedience, but we're mostly tested in the midst of trial. The psalmist was such a one, so he prays, teach me good judgment and knowledge because I believe your commandments before I was afflicted. I went astray, but now I keep your word. You're good to me, and do good. Teach me your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I know that your rules are righteous, and in faithfulness you've afflicted me. Now let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me. And so in the midst of these difficult times, he came really to know God. James speaks of this in James chapter 1. Call it all joy, brothers, when you undergo various trials. Right? Why? Because that produces maturity. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter chapter 1. As he speaks of trials bringing refinement to our faith. Blessing to our lives. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says that hardships are training for us that bring us to holiness. And so therefore, we come to this. Romans 12 and chapter 1. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This presenting of our bodies is deliberate. It's conscious. Paul commands us by the mercies of God, to offer our bodies, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, to give ourselves up, to follow after God. The psalmist knew this kind of conscious act of presenting himself, this deliberateness. In verse 106 he says, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. In the midst of all of his distress, he drew a line And he said, here's my oath, God. I'm going to follow after you. And he puts it like this. He says, I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. And that is where we shall end with this kind of resolve. Let me ask you, please, to stand. There's a prayer before us. It's entitled The Prayer of Consecration. And on this day when we've considered this psalm in almost its entirety, 
from the blessing of the word of God to our own sin, to our own need for God to help us understand, to our own meditation, and now we come to our own obedience. And the question for us is, will we follow after him? If that's the desire of your heart, please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, with the psalmist we delight in your testimonies as much as in all riches. By them you keep our way pure. Give us comfort and strength. Enlarge our hearts. Guide us by making us wise and give us life. Thus we choose the way of faithfulness. We cling to your testimonies. We will run the way of your commandments. May we never hasten to obey. May we never turn aside from your ways. Enable us to keep your statutes to the end, no matter the opposition. Our delight is in you and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.